Uh, hello, my name is Toby Haydock. Only my voice exists, sadly, so the rest of me has been recreated using telesnaps, composite pictures and photographic material from other sources. Today I'm off to see a man who seemed to be in everything when I was a kid, a ubiquitous TV presence. Like an episode of Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps on BBC Three. Turn on your telly any time of day or night, there he was. He's had comedy, popular drama and Shakespeare, so I hope I find him on fine form. Who knows, in this weather anyone could succumb to a virus and get frozen to death. But I'm looking forward to this one. He was a favourite actor as a kid, so I suppose meeting him was something of a destiny fulfilled. So, um, well, hello. Um, uh, we've, we've braved the snow, and uh, I've come to the house of an actor who I noticed before I knew he'd been in Doctor Who. So I'm going to ask him, who are you and why am I talking to you about Doctor Who? Well, my name is Tony Osoba. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an actor, and I think the reason you're talking to me about Doctor Who is, apart from the fact that uh, I've been in two different Doctor Who stories over the years, um, you were so determined to want to speak to me, and that I can understand, <laughs> that uh, I could no longer keep avoiding your phone calls and returning mail saying, you know, um, unknown, and uh, and then when you talk to coming around the door and banging on the door and going around to the back of the house and saying, please let me in and talk to you, I know you're in the... In the end, I thought, gosh, why not? See, so listeners, stalking pays. Uh, <laughs> so, well, Tony, before we get on to Doctor Who, because you've I, you've had this great career where... I, I mean, you, when I first saw you as McLaren the Scotsman in Porridge, I'd seen you in so many other things, because I think it was a repeat of Porridge, so I didn't know you were of Scottish provenance because you've played so many different nationalities in your career. Um, so what's, what's your background and what is your, what is your makeup? Well, um, I was born in Glasgow. Uh, my father was Nigerian, my mother's Scottish. Um, my parents were divorced when I was very young. But uh, we left Glasgow and lived abroad uh, different places for um, when I was two. And then my parents were, broke up when I was four and they were divorced by the time I was seven. But when they broke up, my mother had custody of myself and my two sisters. And uh, we came back to the UK, lived in London for a while and then went back to Scotland. And so I grew up in Scotland, went to school in Scotland um, and, uh, and then also went to drama college in Scotland. And then when I finished drama college, um, immediately came to London with a few other people from the same year and uh, lived in London ever since. But the idea of becoming an actor was actually a very late decision on my part. From a very young age I had a very keen interest in cars, motor cars, and for quite a long time my ambition was to be a motor car designer. And so I was going through school and then when I was approaching university age I was writing to the various car companies saying what exactly should I course should I follow, what should I get uh, in order to pursue this uh, career as a car designer. Nearly all of them 
in fact, I think all of them said, well, you, you could do this, you could do that, you could, but if we were to take you on, um, there are no guarantees, and after a short time, we may decide you don't have an aptitude for car design, and um, but you or you may work in the car design department, and you may wind up, you know, designing the rear panel or the the roof or the. Uh, and I thought, no, 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 because on my school books and on my spare bits of paper, these wonderful kind of designs for the whole thing, cars, engines, all the rest. And so it just set me thinking because of this possibility that A, I may not be good enough, or B, they may decide they don't need somebody. More and more the idea of becoming an actor was coming into my mind. Uh, nobody else knew about it, but I was kind of mulling this over. And then just um, announced, not, not announced, but quietly said to my mother one night, said, you know, I'm thinking of becoming an actor. And she kind of covered her shock fairly well, I think. And, and uh, and because I was, I suppose, she knew that I would have thought this through for quite a long time. This was no sudden, rash decision. Um, so when she was convinced that that was something I really felt I wanted to do, uh, she backed me to the hilt. Uh, you know, unlike perhaps some parents who may have just thought this is just so, such a different direction. Um, and knowing it's a pretty tenuous business to want to go into. Uh, anyway, so from that point on, um, I went to drama college and um, then became an actor and have been an actor uh, ever since. And, and what was your first big break, would you say? Um, fairly early on, I mean, uh, in London, um, myself and a couple of other actors, we shared flats uh, doing little odd jobs, small jobs and small fringe theatres in London. Um, then I was asked to audition for a production of Hair. Victor Spinetti was directing, taking to Amsterdam. Um, initially I didn't get it, but then was asked to, to join the company a little while later, a couple of months later. So I went off to, to Holland, toured for the first time, a big tour doing a, a show around Holland and Germany and so on. And then very shortly after I came back, joined the Royal Shakespeare Company and uh, spent a couple of years with the Royal Shakespeare Company in London and in Stratford. And, and various other theatre jobs come and go. And I suppose I did quite a few television jobs in among all this, but the one big break came along in, in television in 1974 when I'd done a series called uh, Churchill's People and, or a couple of episodes in the series called Churchill's People. And the director there, uh, Michael Hayes, I'd been walking in the corridors of the BBC one day and bumped into Sidney Lotterby, who was a director, a producer of Porridge. And Sidney, they were just talking about this and that, and Sidney said, oh, I'm looking for this young character for the Porridge, this kind. And Michael just suggested me, he said, oh, I just worked with this actor, you know, he might fit the bill and so on. So I found myself um, via my agent being asked to go to the rehearsal block, BBC rehearsal block at uh, White City, um, uh, rather in uh, Acton and um, to meet Ronnie Barker and Sidney Lotterby. Now they were already, they'd already started on the series and they'd filmed two or three episodes of the first series and the character I was playing uh, was only coming into one episode but it was, he was strongly featured. 
And you can imagine, it, it just seemed a bit daunting. Ronnie Bark was a huge name by that time. I mean, before Porridge, he was hugely regarded and very successful. And so on a lunch break or a or coffee break, I can't remember which, I met Ronnie uh, and Sid. <laughs> I was given some pages of script. And I still remember it's quite daunting because they said, oh, you know, would you mind reading a bit? And so first of all, there's Ronnie Barker. And, and the character wasn't 100% established, but, you know, enough to, to go on. And anyway, so um, we did this kind of impromptu audition with Ronnie reading his lines and Sid giving me a bit of direction and, and, and me playing um, the scene. And, uh, and that was that. They thanked me for coming along. And um, so I left and headed off home and by the time I got home my agent had called to say yeah they wanted me to do it which was just astonishing because mm. in those days I suppose you did learn quite quickly much more quickly than today you know whether you've got a part or, or not um, uh, but that was phenomenally fast and of course I was delighted now although it was Ronnie Barker and um, Dick Clement and Ian Lafreniere the writers had had uh, big hits with the likely lads and lots of other stuff they'd written. There were still no guarantees that this was going to be an enormous success, and in fact, it became a huge, huge success. Uh, so they did series two and series three, and they retained my character, fortunately for me. And uh, yeah, it became one of the one of the happiest kind of jobs I've ever done. But also, it was an enormous break because. It put my face on television and of course people see you in one thing and particularly if it's successful then people think about you for another thing so that led to you know lots of other TV work and and so over the, the next 20 years or something the bulk of what I did was television with still some theatre base um, alongside but mostly television so Porridge undoubtedly was just an enormous break and because you weren't a regular regular so much as a semi-regular popped in and out so would, pe would people then just check your availability and go oh is Tony available for this were you getting offered work did you have to stop reading for stuff uh, quite often yeah it would be a straight offer people would see you in something be, but sometimes if it was a different kind of character or if he wasn't um, the character I played in, in, in Porridge was very strongly Scottish and so you know people still say would you come along and do but it's that thing of being associated with a success, then um, you know people become aware of you. People, by people, I mean people who are potentially looking for actors. You know, people who are going to be casting producers, writers who have an idea that you might fit something they've written, so they'll suggest to the production company they're working for. Um, and yeah, so lots of yeah, lots of other work did flow in from undoubtedly the exposure that Porridge gave uh, to all the people involved in it including myself. Well, but the great thing about it is as well is that you didn't go off and play lots of Scotsmen it seems to me. You, it was at a time when although you were you know, well known and obviously well seen playing a particular, two quite narrow things actually if you're a casting director, the black Scotsman that's two things that, that are a big signal and yet you seem to escape that typecasting thing and do all sorts of different things. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's true. I think also because you're popular in one thing, I mean, quite often people will think, oh, I'd like somebody in this because, uh, you know, they're popular in this, the public will, will know the face and so on. So I'm, I'm quite sure that there was 
uh, your profile is higher. And so people would consider you for jobs that weren't particularly closely associated with them. Um, uh, you know, with porridge or the character that they saw in that. So yes, I was fortunate insofar as I it wasn't a narrow field. I mean, I played various other characters, and I think also not too long after that, I mean, well, a few years after that, I did another. There was another series I did called Dempsey and Makepeace, where I was a regular. Now that was very different character, um, light years removed from. But because of the success of that series, and people saw you in something else and in between times I was doing lots of you know, different roles on other TV shows one-offs and things playing characters that were totally different from the porridge character so it wasn't you know you, you try and avoid being pigeonholed as an actor you, you, you know you just try and keep your work possibilities as wide as possible I've, somehow it seemed to work I mean I, I did do um, lots of or played lots of characters that were totally dissimilar from the, the Porridge role. Um, Including in Doctor Who a rather fetching camp disco alien uh, in Destiny of the Daleks. Well you know you, you notice that subtle characterisation like that. Um, Destiny of the Daleks yeah um, usually I played a character called Lan who was a Mavellan an android for, who was um, and they were fighting the Daleks on the, on this far distant planet. And the character I played has the distinction, I believe, in being the only character in the entire canon of Doctor Who who is zapped by a Dalek and comes back to life. Now, I know it happened to David Tennant, but Doctors don't count, I, mean, I think. <laughs> because they're always going to come back. I mean, you never knock off a Doctor Who. But, um, yeah, so Lan, this Mavellan, um, he came back to life after having been killed off by a Dalek. Um, so that's a claim to fame. Uh, yes, and so is the fact that you, you... I mean, I have to say, one of the most marvellous things about the Mavellans is that you've got these wonderful white costumes that you keep spotless throughout the thing, even though you spend a lot of time in a sandpit. We spent a great deal of time in a, some kind of sand quarry down near Poole in, in Dorset. And, um, yeah, and it was not warm, sunny days. We were in fairly cool and quite often rainy uh, conditions. So the wardrobe department, yeah, I mean, they had their work cut out to keep us looking spotless and tidy and clean and neat. Um, it's the kind of costume I certainly would... Um, would probably not wear today, but uh, <laughs> they were extremely eye-catching. Skin tight, as you say, pure white. Uh, skin tight, kind of tights on with long boots and white boots and a, a kind of doublet, white doublet, and then long, almost dreadlock, but made of silver, silver dreadlocks, uh, with little, I think, pink or silver beads on the end of the dreadlocks. It was a if no one's seen it and they hear me describing it, the first thing I want to rush off and look it up. But yeah, no, they were they were extraordinary eye-catching costumes and fiendishly difficult to keep clean, as you say. And is is it a challenge when you look like that and you're acting opposite Tom Baker, who was at I think it's not pejorative to say at the height of his silliness um, to to sort of keep it grounded in a sort of reality. Um. 
let me see. If I'm going to say no, it wasn't a challenge, then myself, Peter Straker, and Suzanne Danielle, I would have to say, oh, well, it didn't take much in the way of acting then, did it? We, and I'd say, no, no, we were brilliant. We were stunning, <laughs> maintained that character throughout. Uh, we had our moments in between takes, as you can imagine. I mean, we would, there was a great deal of kind of jokiness in between times. And not just us among ourselves, but the rest of the unit who would um, who would delight in in making comments and things. But uh, yeah, we uh, we managed to keep a straight face when the camera turned over. Well, <laughs> Peter Strake is an interesting piece of casting because he's not he, not that to one associates particularly with television. He's a sort of musical and a singer, isn't he? Musical theatre, and uh, yes, and that had been his forty, and that was you know most of Peter's career was a tremendously powerful um, stage presence and but that yes that was his um, that was his main uh, that was his main career was um, musical theatre occasional forays into television and film and, and yeah. I mean I'd known Peter before uh, not closely but um, I had done hair not the production he was in but I'd done hair with several other people who he had also been in the production with and of course just knocking around the West End as we did uh, you'd bump into people and so we met socially different times uh, and it was fun uh, working with Peter and Suzanne Danielle who was the third Mo Vellum um, we did we got on very well and uh, we had a, a very jolly time the three of us lots of chuckles and laughter and uh, and looking each other in the eye and almost <laughs> trying to make the other one laugh, of course, and the I mean, naughty behaviour, but fun. Uh, and Ken Grieve directing his only Doctor Who, he seems quite a character. I adored Ken Grieve. I mean, I, he, uh, wonderful, wonderful director, hugely encouraging man, very uh, relaxed and easy, got across what he wanted from the actors, very, you know, in, in a straightforward kind of way just a joy to, 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 to work with and I remember in later years um, another very good friend of mine um, actress called uh, Shivan Taylor who also um, worked with Ken Grieve on a totally different project years later was just full of praise for this director she'd worked with and when I heard his name I wasn't surprised and, and so I imagine that anyone who's ever worked for Ken would feel the same yeah, a joyful person to work with and uh, th th this was the first story for, uh, in terms of um, it being televised of uh, Lala Ward's Romana and she of course went on to marry Tom Baker. Did, you, did, did, did they click that early on? Uh, well, thinking about it later, I, I, I don't recall any kind of overt signals in the shooting of it. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure something must have been going, but it, it wasn't evident, or particularly wasn't obvious to to the rest of us. I don't think, um, and, and I suppose the schedules are fairly tight on these, so you're, it's pretty fast moving. So, and you know, I didn't share a dressing room with Tom, nor regrettably perhaps with Lala, but <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. So I, you know, you don't know. I, I'm sure they probably, you know, if you looked for it and and. and you may have seen something, but no, it wasn't particularly evident while uh, we were working. And at the time, that was your one foray into Doctor Who. We know you, you, you would go on later. It's interesting, you've got that tie with Peter Straker because of hair. You've just mentioned Shirin Taylor, who is in Dragonfire, which we'll come on to in to a minute. So it's the way that this 
strange acting profession intertwines with everything. Um, if you're going to do a Doctor Who and you're going to tell friends and family and kids or friends' kids or whatever, doing one with the Daleks surely has to be the one to get. I think it is. I, I think it, you know, they're the top baddies, aren't they? They're the top enemy. They're the, the kind of recurring enemy that is a theme for, for Doctor Who. And I, I, I think it's quite right that if people think of Doctor Who, whichever Doctor through the, the ages, and anyone, the first answer, if anyone said, oh, who, who are the Doctor's enemies, Daleks would be number one. They're so unique uh, and such an extraordinary kind of creation. Uh, unlike any other, uh, I suppose because they're not humanoid, they're not, they have that wonderful kind of uh, characterization for their voice, that, uh, uh, you know, electronic kind of uh, non-human way of communication. They look unlike anything else. Um, and I suppose if you looked at it and didn't know what it was, you probably wouldn't think that they were a fearsome looking thing. But the way that uh, they were characterised in Doctor Who, suddenly just looking at Dalek now will strike panic and fear into, well, some people perhaps, <laughs> uh, because you associate what they did and, and the ruthless way in which they dealt with people. But when you know, but to look at it itself, and if you knew nothing of Doctor Who and nothing of Dalek, and you just saw that shape and that great you know sink plunger sticking out of its head, and uh, it wouldn't strike fear and terror in the way that uh, Godzilla might, you know, or some other really frightening looking creature. But nonetheless, they had the power to chill and send people scuttling behind the sofa in a way that probably no other adversary for Doctor Who's done. They're, they're more than a sum of their parts. Greater, far, far greater than the sum of their parts. And then, you you know, you went on and, and, and carried on, um, seemingly never out of work and what's the longest period you've had out of work then in, in, in that sort of time because you seemingly to me were cropping up everywhere uh, we're talking about 70s 80s 90s yeah I, I suppose I was fortunate I mean there were periods out of work but they were never too sustained um, and, and also I was moving quite freely between theatre and, 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 and television occasional film uh, lots of radio work and things. So, yeah, um, I suppose because I was in um, working in different fields, then um, you know there was always something. It seemed uh, um, occasional periods out of work, but they were never too long for sure. Um, so fortunate, perhaps. And then you crop up in Doctor Who again uh, a few years later. Uh, different director, different Doctor. So how how had things changed when you stepped onto the set of? Dragonfire, which is in the sort of twilight of the original run of Doctor Who. Yes, well, this was uh, Sylvester as Doctor, and I can't remember now how long Doctor Who had been going up until that point. Dragonfire, I remember, for lots of different reasons. I mean, Chris Clough directed it. Um, again, another joy of a guy to work with, but I remember it also because there were two particularly close friends of mine also on it. Um, Tony Selby, uh, who play, played in that and had played previously Solomon Glitz, uh, a semi-running character for, in some of the Doctor stories, and, uh, and Chirin Taylor, actress friend for a very long time, she also played a role in it. Um, and also I remember it, it, 
again, it was great fun to do. Sylvester, easy. I, I didn't know him before, Doctor. I'd never come across him before. We had never, our paths had never crossed. And uh, delightful man, very funny man, easy to get on with, uh, fun to work with. Um, the whole atmosphere on the set, uh, fun, lots of laughter around the place. Uh, and yeah, it was it was an enjoyable time, and um, I remember it with great affection. I think partly because it's always fun if you're working with friends and people you know well. It's uh, um, you know it brings an added joy to to the job itself. It just occurred to me that Krakauer, the character I played in Dragonfire, also was dressed in white from <laughs> head, thinking head that. to foot. <laughs> I think. Do, do you have scrupulously clean at the top of your CV or something like that? <laughs> no, but you, you kind of think, if I thought about it before, I, maybe it's an opportunity to kind of get into commercials for a soap powder or something. <laughs> go through all these adventures and keep spotless. Absolutely it's, spotless. Thanks to the aid of Krakow and Landa Mavellan, go through their daily lives clutching a you know, pack of dares or tide or something under their arms. <laughs> Emergency. Yeah, the, the Ice World Doorstep Challenge. Yeah. Um, and it, that's quite, he's a good character really, because you start off as the sort of villainous, um, um, sort of off, off and heavy, um, who then gets an attack of the conscience and then sort of surprising, because you and Patricia Quinn look like you're going to be, you know, protagonists all the way through and then suddenly at the end of episode two you've both been bumped off being zapped being got rid of yeah uh, it's uh, I think that's a funny I think it's always nice isn't it and Doctor is very good at this uh, along with top script writing is that you don't quite see what's coming I mean that's disguised very well but also I think Ian Briggs who wrote Dragonfire um, it escaped me at the time but I remember talking to him afterwards um, quite a long time afterwards and he said, you know, the character names in, in Dragonfire, for a lot of the characters there, um, there was uh, Belash, Trisha Quinn, there was my own character, Krakow, McLuhan, Bazine. Uh, Pradovkin as well. Pradovkin. And, of course, all these um, you know, film theorists, film critics, writers. And he just had a bit of fun with himself, just playing around with that. But, of course... At the time, that wasn't evident to anyone. I don't think nobody made the connection immediately. They just took these as say, unusual names. And I, I like the idea of having fun with the writing. I just yeah. uh, that's uh, that's nice. And 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 sometimes, and I'm sure that lots of people who watched and did get the connection with the character names would be, you know, think, oh gosh, yeah. That's a, you know, most of us like me at the time, as I say, it completely washed over me. But. Uh, uh, it's fun for those that did spot it, and well, of course, Edward Peel was Kane, the chief citizen of uh, of the planet. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And it was Sophie Aldred's first foray into Doctor Who, and th th at that point, when she got the job, she didn't know she was going to um, carry on. No, she didn't, and I believe. I mean, I think about Sophie. I remember. I mean, she it was her first job, and a fairly daunting kind of task. She was taking over from. Uh, from Bonnie, uh, Bonnie Langford, who played Mel, the Doctor's sidekick, who was then leaving, and Sophie, I think, was up, had been up for a different role, um, which she didn't get, but then they thought she would be good for this. And I just remember she was extremely assured uh, on set. I, I, I don't mean you know, 
two or sure, so, but she you wouldn't have known if, that it was her first television job because it is quite difficult um, to learn to, all the different phraseology and you know first positions and hit your marks you know things that you don't pick up in theatre things that totally uh, unique. and also the atmosphere is very different and you're not quite sure where you should be looking and what camera and so she um, she picked that up immediately and uh, gave a very very good account of herself and I was astonished when I found out it was her first television. The uh, thing I also remember about that was in rehearsals. Around the time we were rehearsing that, there was a, a big craze for a, a pop group called the Beastie Boys, an American band. And one of the things this American band did um, was they wore chains around their necks and quite often they had a car badge, a motor car badge, you know, Ford or Volkswagen or whoever it was. And I remember um, Bonnie came into rehearsals one day and she had a belt, a big leather belt, and it had a BMW badge right in the middle. Now as we we're getting coffee and stuff, we we're chatting about this and that, and I said to her, oh, Bonnie, I'm really disappointed. She said, what? I said, oh, don't say what. I am. I'm just so disappointed. I never would have believed it of you. She said, what, what? I said, that belt, you know, it's, I said, it's no fun going flicking, you know, names off the bonnet of cars. I said, I had it done to myself. And it really is deeply frustrating. It cost me a lot of money to go and replace. She said, I didn't, I didn't steal it. I didn't, because the craze was around in Britain then. People were going, stealing badges off cars and screwdriving things out of the car. And so I kept it. And the problem with me is it, it, I think people just think I'm joking immediately. And if I think, oh, they haven't spotted it, I just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she gets about the rest of the day coming. Because I didn't let her off the hook. <laughs> Every break, we had, Tony, Tony, I didn't, honestly, I, I don't, look, I, I, I can take you to the shop, I, I'll take you to the shop where I bought it. I said, no, no, don't, it's no good for you, don't, you know. <laughs> the fact that you're not even apologetic, you're not even contrite about it, makes it even worse. <laughs> anyway, at the end of the day, I thought, I'm just so sorry, and I, I just felt I'd been so mean, so horrible. And so I thought, oh, please let me buy you the lunch, let me make it up to you, I'm so sorry, I was taking a biggie. But she was quite relieved when she realised, <laughs> so sorry whack round the shoulder. Poor but, Bonnie uh, Langford. Uh, uh, she's delightful, lovely, lovely. But that touches on something that goes back to the start of our conversation and you picked me up today very kindly from the station. I don't know anything about cars but it's very nice and it's silver and it's got lovely leather seats. Uh, you, I'll stop you there, just say uh, the phrase I picked you up at the station. If you like to say I collected you at the station. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Let's get let's get, put a different complexion on this. Good. Um, but cars. So cars are still very important to you. Oh, hugely. All my life. Yeah, they have been all my life. Um, I mean, I've I've never ever owned a new car. Mostly because the kind of new cars I could afford. I thought, well, no, I'd much rather have a much more interesting second car. So I've had lots of not a lot of sports cars. A lot of um, you know. But interesting cars, I mean, I've always, and not always sports cars, lots of different cars, but lots and lots of cars. At one point, I owned six cars. I thought, oh, it's probably too many. Yeah. <laughs> but, but among these, I've, for many, many years, had um, classic cars, quite often one or two classic cars, which I just enjoyed tinkering with and and uh, driving around. So on the whole, I prefer older cars to, to new cars. Although... Um, if I had the money, there's one new car, the 100th anniversary Aston Martin, which is number one on my shopping list. 
but uh, yeah so cars have always as I say always been important and not to attract attention from anyone I just I just enjoy cars I've enjoyed every aspect of them I enjoy owning them you know, drawing them I go to motoring events I, you know I go to been to Formula One races other kind of racetrack days very minor racetrack days uh, just anything to do with a car. Yeah. And, and you tinker, do you? You, you? you know, you know every nut and bolt. No, and no, 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 not to that extent. I mean, to 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 an extent, but, you know, I am. But I would never, you know, I couldn't take an engine out of the car and put it back in, for example, things like that. But you know, other things, yeah, uh, and and just get a great deal of satisfaction of of, of doing things with cars. Uh, and it, as I, I think I said before, that it stems from a very very young age that. I was just attracted to cars, I and mean, by the time I was five, I certainly six or seven, I could tell you every single other, every car on the road, the make and so. On. And as as a young child, when I first started to read the the, the young learner's books, Noddy was my character, simply because he had a car. I mean, you know, I didn't kind of envy him his polka dot scarf or his pointed helmet, pointed hat with a bell on the end. These I could have lived without. The car, <laughs> and the fact that he was just a boy that had a car that could drive a car around. I thought, well, I'm a boy. I mean, I'd love to have a car. So, um, yeah. So cars have featured, even to this day, yeah, uh, throughout my life. And and in that connection, I mean, I started many years ago. One of the things, as most actors do, you're in a strange town, you're in a you know foreign country. Sometimes, if you're um, off on location. And one of the things I used to like doing was just wherever I was, if I was away from home, was get out and about when you had free time during the day, if you had a, you know, if you're doing a theatre show and touring, I'd like to get out and walk around the town I was in or the city. If you're on location and you had a day off and you'd learnt new lines, so you had nothing to do. Get out. And so one of the things I found myself doing was dropping in second-hand stores and things um, and antique shops and things around looking for old unusual model cars or and uh, and so that gave a kind of purpose to the you know you've got a feel of the town the city but also it was a purpose to to the walk and um and so sometimes you know uh, get the, and so renovating or repairing old model cars also became a something i enjoyed and it's a hobby i still have to this day i mean i collect um old not antique cars but old um, model cars and things that's been a passion also for a long time well and, and outside of um, that and outside of the the, the programs that people um, doubtless ask you about all the time which obviously porridge obviously doctor who and dempsey and Makepeace. um you know as an actor you have a very different perspective in your career to other people because you don't know what it is that you're doing that is going to be the one that people people want to talk to you about so when you when you think of the stuff that you've done is the stuff that you go oh, I wish people would ask me about that because that was a great job or I was really good in that or I particularly enjoyed that that's maybe outside the sphere of the things you're normally asked about yeah I suppose number one would be um, Shakespeare in the theatre I've done a lot of Shakespeare uh, over the years um, it's still the number one passion I mean if if all things were equal and uh, you know apart from change of variety it's nice, nice to do contemporary work and nice to um, do other kind of different genres but Shakespeare just, just encompasses it all and it just sets challenges for actors that 
probably nothing else does in the same way. Um, you cannot do a Shakespeare play, you can't play any even reasonable role in a Shakespeare play without um, asking a great deal of, of yourself. It does challenge you, it does um, bring things out of you in a way that I think um, you know, other parts do are demand, demanding. Shakespeare always is demanding. You can't, uh, you know, if you if you're going to do it properly, you can't cut corners. You can't. But also, it's so rich. You can't. You know, lots of actors. Doesn't matter how often you might come back to a part, you will always discover something else, a different way, something you hadn't thought of before. Uh, and it's the genius of the writing that, which applies to everything. Good writing is what gets any actor every time. And Shakespeare just encompasses everything you could possibly hope for um, and also you approach it <laughs> kind of slightly daunted every time I think gosh what am I going to do with it it's um, you know you know you, you you have to be on your game to to meet the challenges that that's that is going to throw you away and not the satisfaction of having done something because you don't pat yourself on the back and say but you can feel, yeah, this is this is a proper workout. This is something that's you know you can go to bed at night and sleep a sound sleep, thinking, yeah, I've extended myself as you know as much as it's possibly possible to do. Well, I've I've exceeded my the chunk of your precious time that I promised to take from you. So, but that leads me to one of my three last questions. Then two of which are regular listener. We'll, we'll know about. So the first one, but I have to ask because Shakespeare is a shared passion, and I think because you've done so much television, we always think of you as a television actor. So I think it's great to hear your thoughts on theatre and Shakespeare. The Shakespeare part you haven't done that you would like to do. For me, I'd like to. I'd like to play Mark Antony. Well, uh, I played Othello. But not the whole thing. I've done it in different parts and so on, different times. Uh, to have to play that role would be an enormous challenge uh, and something I deeply like to do, uh, along with Mark Antony. And, um, and I suppose, unlikely that I'd ever be cast, but uh, Richard III is something else that because I think that role within itself you have to make the challenges to make that a real human being not just some nasty kind of awful villain and, and, and that I think you know you could you could work happily till the end of your days trying to try to crack that role and um, as again regular, the regular listener will know um, you've given your time very kindly to do this uh, for not, I haven't even bought you a coffee you've provided the coffee um, uh, so what I ask you to do uh, if listeners have enjoyed this and I'm sure they have is to nominate a charity that hopefully if everybody listening gives a pound uh, to that charity it's your way of paying for something that you haven't paid for and benefiting a good cause but I ask you Tony because it's you who've given the time to nominate a charity you would like people to donate to oh well um I know you said a charity. If I may, I'd like to mention two, if I could. Uh, one would be Macmillan Nurses, and one would be Guide Dogs for the Blind. 
Well, one is for Destiny of the Daleks and one is for Dragonfire, so oh, you can do that. And the final question, and it's a it's a terrible question, but it seems a great way to end it. Um, and everybody always flounders and goes, oh, I don't know, so we'll see if you cope. It's Doctor Who's 50th anniversary. There's lots of Doctor Who fans out there. What, what What's the message to the Doctor Who fans on Doctor Who's 50th year? Oh, I don't know. Let me think. Message to... Um, if I were to say to all those who love and adore Doctor Who, remember this, this is only the beginning. Cope very well with a terrible question. Tony Asoba, thank you very much for your time. My sincere thanks to Tony. Nice man, he very kindly then dropped me back at the station in his car. Now, I made a note of the make. It's called a a big silver car. Uh, now then, tomorrow uh, I'm off to see a gorilla in Oxford Circus and an alien on the South Bank. <laughs> All I need is a yeti in the underground on the way, and I'll have completed quite the threesome. So do come back, have a listen, and uh, in the meantime, thanks for your time. Till the next one, I am known as Toby Haydock. Largely because that's my name. that voice again, didn't you? Yes, and you didn't. No, it seems as if whoever these creatures are, they want to speak to you, specifically. I am recording this message aboard the conglomerate space platform Fortune in the Proxima 4 system, and this experiment will be our brand's defining moment. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Sands of Life. Let the experiment begin. Coming straight at us. Global one alert now. Well, we've no idea what it is, but it's right in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Their eyes. Danger, mistress. Something is making contact with the mistress. Does that sound friendly to you? Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. Well, if you hadn't already decided to buy that, uh, I should just let you know that uh, I'm in it. Yeah. <laughs> David Warner, Hayley Atwill, Tom Baker. No, no, no. The Haydokes in town. So, um, buy that one. <laughs>